Hi everyone. It's lovely to be here. I uh, want to begin by offering my respect uh, to Gil. I have a deep respect for his dedication to Dharma and to what he's inspired here and elsewhere. I'm grateful to uh, be in this community with you tonight. So I thought um, tonight I would speak a little bit about something that I have a lot of heart for, and that is um, um, the experience of surrender. And um, while I'm going to speak about it in terms of a surrendering that, a potential for surrendering that exists in the time of dying, and my hope is that you'll find um, application for it in your everyday life. Um, just as um, we don't have to be di- wait until we're dying to wait to learn the lessons that dying has to teach, I'd like to think that this might apply to other dimensions of our life than uh, either caring for the dying. But for those of you who are working in service, it might have some direct uh, usefulness in your life. But also think of it just in terms of your relationship with yourself. There's another way to think about this. So with that uh, preamble. Um, um, oh, some years ago, uh, when I was running Zen Hospice, I don't run it anymore. We had a very big... Um, unit in a hospital, a 28-bed, 30-bed unit in one room, if you can imagine such a thing. 30 beds, row after row after row. Uh, nothing like it this side of uh, Calcutta. It's at the Laguna Honda Hospital in San Francisco. One day I was walking down this uh, gauntlet of beds, and there was an older black man that was in his bed, perspiring, breathing with great difficulty. I went over and I sat down beside him, and his eyes were closed, and I said to him, uh, you look like you're working really hard. And he said, yeah, just got to get there, and he pointed like that. And I said, oh. I said, um, if I promise to keep up, can I go? And he said, yeah, and he took my hand. And um, I said to him, uh, I can't see so well. Maybe you could uh, give me some directions. And uh, he described uh, a very uh, slow slope up a hillside uh, to a plateau. And I said, okay, well, you you lead. I'll follow. And uh, we walked up this hillside together. And then I said to him, "Uh, I can't see into the distance. Can you see into the distance? And he said, yeah. Just one or two word responses from him. But he described uh, in the distance uh, a little one-room red schoolhouse with a small porch and three steps up to the door. I said, oh, you want to go there? Yeah. And so we walked uh, toward this little red schoolhouse. This is a man who was about 80, and he had been born in Mississippi. Now, I could have said to him at this point, um, you're disoriented times three. 
This is the result of the morphine and the organic brain disease. But actually, that wasn't the truth. You see? The truth was, we were headed for this little red schoolhouse. And so we walked. And it was a hard walk. He, he really worked hard. He was breathing hard and sweating. It was hard. Long walk. And we got just close to the building and started we could go up the steps. And I said, there's the door. Can you see the door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, do you want to go in? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, can I go? He said, no. I said, all right, then you go. And a few minutes later, he died uh, very peacefully. To see the sacred, to recognize the sacred, is not so much about seeing new things as it often is about seeing things in a new way. To recognize the sacred is not so much about seeing new things as it is to see things in a new way. And the sacred that I'm pointing us to tonight is not something different um, or separate from all things, but rather is hidden in all things. Yeah? And our meditation practice and the process of dying, they're an opportunity, an opportunity to uncover what's hidden. Yeah? So to see the sacred is to gradually remove the obstructions or the perspectives or that which may block our capacity to see what was already there. The truth that was always present. Yeah? Now, this sacred, it's not something separate. We have this idea sometimes that it's something we move toward and it's somehow over there and we're going to get to it and somehow grasp it. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has that really beautiful um, way of helping us to understand this. I'm sure a lot of you know it. You know, he, he holds up a piece of white paper like this. Yeah? And he says, what do you see? Yeah? What do you see? Piece of paper. Uh-huh. Okay. How about you? What do you see? You, all, you agree with him. Piece of paper. Uh-huh. How about you? What do you see? You agree with her too. Well this, well, this will be interesting. Let's see. You, you agree as well? And you see black print on the paper now. Ah, so we see more. And how about you, sir? What do you see? White paper. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, well, children are much better at this game. <laughs> uh, t- children say clouds and trees. I was going to say a piece of a cloud. You were going to say a piece of a cloud. Aha, uh-huh. good. Well, that's what children often say. And when we look closely, we'll see that. Huh? We'll see clouds and trees and the logger and the logger's wife who made him a sandwich that day and the wheels on the truck that rolled it down to the, to the lumber yard. Yeah. All of that's in the paper. Take out any one of those things and we wouldn't have paper. Yeah? So, to see the sacred is not to see new things, but to see things in a new way. And so for me, 
you know, for the last 25 years or so, working with people who are dying, part of my work is to see this experience of dying in a new way, in a different way, than how we conventionally tend to view it. Uh, for me, uh, dying can be, and I'm not, saying it always, I'm not saying it always is, but it can be a time of extraordinary growth and transformation. It certainly can be much more than making the best of a bad situation, which is the way that we tend to regard it in this culture. And to a large extent, it's the way in which our healthcare system and even hospices often uh, deal with uh, people who are dying. But in my view, anyway, at least what dying people have shown me, and what meditation has also shown me, by the way, and I want to speak a bit about those parallels, is that dying is, at its heart, a sacred act. At its very heart, a sacred act. It is a time, a place, a process of transformation. And so given this, it's important to recognize that spiritual support is every bit as important as pain management or symptom control or some of the other conventional responses we have to caring for the dying. All of which are important, but so is attending to the spirit of the person who's dying. Dying is not predominantly a medical event. I've been, I don't know, a couple of thousand people now I've been with. And my understanding from that experience is that it's not predominantly a medical event. It's more an issue of relationships. It's our relationship with ourself, with those we love, with God or whatever image of ultimate kindness we hold in our lives. And so then accompanying people who are dying or people who are facing some trauma, we could say, um, is a matter of supporting and developing those relationships. And this relationship is characterized much more by mystery than mastery. Or so says my friend Rachel Remen. That's how she describes it. Now, I, I tend to think of it slightly differently. Uh, I sometimes call it the three M's. People like these lists of things, I find. Three M's. <coughs> for me, are mastery, meaning, and mystery. Now, when I'm dying, I want somebody around who knows, I want somebody at my bedside who knows what they're doing. I want mastery. I want the best people I can find who will provide the most thorough care that they know how to provide. I don't want some amateur there. I want mastery. But that won't be enough, right? Because we all have been in such situations where we're surrounded by knowing, but something's missing. And so we need to bring in this other element, and that's the element of meaning. And that means that I have to—I want somebody with me who's comfortable uh, inquiring into what is it that has value and purpose in my life. That might come about through storytelling or all kinds of other ways that it might surface, but we're comfortable in the territory of meaning, we could say. But that won't be enough. Yeah? I'm hard to please. 
That won't be enough because at some juncture in the dying process, just as we see in the meditative process, meaning falls away, doesn't it? We are meaning-making machines, a friend of mine tells me. But we see in meditation process, in the meditation practice, rather, that meaning just falls away and something else emerges, doesn't it? And the same is true in dying. And what emerges is the territory of mystery. Yeah? Um, this territory of mystery, we could say, is about um, living in the territory of unanswerable questions, actually. Learning to be comfortable in this territory. Now, this is rarely offered to people near the end of life. Well, I'm afraid that it just isn't. Um, sometimes, we, all, we often, if we're lucky, we get the first mastery, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get the second. But rarely do we have people in the room with us who are really comfortable in the territory of mystery. And so as a result, I believe, too many people in this country are still dying in distress and fear. And I think we could do something about that. Now, for this kind of support that I'm describing to be helpful in the time of dying, but also, I would say, these might be useful instructions in our meditative, meditative practice as well. Um, I noticed that there were three characteristics in my work with folks who are dying, which mm, would be helpful if they could be, if we could look at them and, and be present with them. The first of those is the willingness to be compassionately present for suffering. Not to turn away. Yeah? To be really present for suffering. Compassionately present. I want to talk about that in a moment. And the second is a willingness uh, to relinquish ourselves and others from the limitations of image and role. Yeah? And third is something that's a little more difficult to speak to. And that is a kind of abiding trust um, in the very process of dying. But another way to say it is an abiding trust that we are more than the separate self we have taken ourselves to be. Yeah? So these three characteristics are both essential, I would say, in working with people who are dying, if we're really going to support them. But if you look at them carefully, you might see that they would make excellent meditation instructions um, on a retreat. The willingness to be compassionately present for our suffering, the willingness to relinquish our identification with image, with role, story, etc. And the third, to be completely confident in the process that we're engaged in, and to really trust or see clearly this notion of uh, separation as a kind of illusion. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk about each. I'd like to talk about each of these three things and develop them a little bit. The first is willingness to be compassionately present for suffering. 
For me, this begins, of course, by making room for our own pain, our own discomfort, our own emotional distress. Um, It's the exploration of our own pain, of our own helplessness, of our own fear, uh, that enables us, really, to build an empathetic bridge to the other person. That's what allows us to do it. Um, Carl Rogers, I was telling Landa, my sweetheart, the other night, that Carl Rogers had a beautiful way of talking about empathy. He said that empathy was the willingness to enter into the private perceptual world of the other and to move about it delicately. It's a good description. He said that um, it is to look with fresh eyes at that which frightens the other. And he said, one can only do this by temporarily leaving our world. And what he meant by that is leaving behind your agendas. Uh, And one could only do that when you know that you're confident that you could return to your world anytime you needed to. So, to build an empathetic bridge to the other, we have to begin by welcoming any and all of who we are. And in my experience, this is what makes us trustworthy with others. Yeah. Um, we cannot travel with others, whether it's in their dying process or in any other process in life, if we haven't explored the territory ourselves. Yeah. If we say to someone who's afraid, for example, oh, I understand. And we haven't really explored our fear. We don't really know what happens to us when we're afraid. We haven't become intimate with it. What happens to your tongue when you're afraid? What happens in your chest? What kinds of thoughts go through your mind? Planning thoughts and remembering thoughts. How intimate are you with this experience? If we haven't made that kind of exploration and become quite intimate with it, then when I say I understand, the other person will know that I'm just guessing. And they will sniff out my sentimentality and my insincerity. And they'll yell bullshit. And so, um, in order to be of service, any kind of service, we have to do our homework. We have to explore our own relationship to these issues. Then when we do that, we can be a somewhat more open, available space, we call it, or individual that can respond, not with pity, but with compassion. And this word compassion is so overused these days, I'm sometimes hesitating to use it. Conservative compassionism, you know? I mean, it's just compassionate conservatism, is that what it's called? (laughs) Oh, my. I mean, this is a whole evening's discussion, but I'll just say a word or two about this. I mean, you understand that the common definition of compassion is suffer with others. And if you look up the word passion in the, the dictionary, you'll see its relationship to suffering. And, and part of what it will point you to is the suffering of Christ. Those of you who know that story, Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, is, he, he says at one point uh, something like, um, I'm sorrowful unto my death. Remain with me and watch. Yeah? He doesn't say take it all away. He just says, I'm really scared. 
I'm really sorry. If he was Californian, he would have said, just be with me. Yeah. And if you know the story, it was really hard for people to be with him. They kept falling asleep. Yeah. And he had to come around, keep waking them up, because it's hard to be awake to our suffering. We want to go away. Compassion wants to be with suffering. Compassion knows through sensing. And it it feels for me sometimes like compassion is a kind of guidance that emerges in me in response to suffering. And it just wants to snuggle up close to suffering. It wants to stay with it, not so much to get it to get the suffering to go away, but to allow us to be with something that might have otherwise seemed intolerable. And it remains with us, not necessarily with the task of alleviating the circumstance that might be giving rise to the suffering, but stays with us Really, until the truth can reveal itself. That's what happens. Compassion just hangs out with us until the truth can reveal itself. That's the beauty and grace of compassion. Carl Jung, the great humanist, you know, he, he once described compassion as the sacred space in which an individual can suffer the suffering They have always needed to suffer. Now that's pretty tough. We have to be really careful there because it sounds like martyrdom or like we would leave people in their suffering. But when you go on a meditation retreat at Spirit Rock or come here even on a Monday evening, in a way, isn't it the same thing? Isn't it a sacred space sometimes in which one can suffer the suffering we need to suffer until we can see the truth, causes of that suffering? experience is that being with people who are dying left me absolutely no place to hide. Anytime I would try and protect myself behind some notion or an image, some knowledge, it would just pull the rug out from under me. So what's it mean to be compassionately present? What's it look like? It's not just an idea. Some years ago, I got called up by a family that I didn't know. They telephoned me and they said that their seven-year-old boy had died of cystic fibrosis. And they heard about me and they said, we'd really like to keep him at home and we understand you could help us to do that. And I said, sure. So I got off the phone and I drove to their house and I never met them. And after parking my car, I went in their house and I found my way into the boy's bedroom where family was gathered. And following my intuition, I went over to this young boy, this seven-year-old boy, and I just kissed him on the forehead. And... um, When I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while they had cared for him with great love, nobody had touched him since he died. 
And so this mom and dad and I, we sat down and we talked about how we might bathe this boy as a kind of ritual. And now for millennium, every culture, every tradition had some way of anointing the body. And what would it be like if we were to draw on those ancient traditions but find something that had personal relevance for this family? They were great gardeners, I remember, and so we went out and gathered old lemon geraniums and rose petals and uh, herbs from the garden. And we made a wonderful bath of these flowers and herbs. And we gathered cloth, washcloths and towels. And then just as mom and dad and I were in the room with this young boy. And they started to bathe his body. I remember that they bathed him from the back of his head. They started there and they bathed down his back, you know, turned him on his side. It took a long time. And as they would wash his back, they'd stop, you know, to tell me a story about him. Something from his life as a way of not only helping me to know him, but also for them to get current with what was actually, what had actually happened. This mom would stop at any little scratch or mark on his body and be so intimate with it, take such good care of it, really. And sometimes it was too hard for the dad to even participate at all and he'd have to go and stand by the window and look out to the garden. just overwhelmed him. This is every parent's worst nightmare. I remember this mom got to his toes and she counted his toes. She said she'd done that when he was born. Took a long time. Hours and hours. Because they would start to go forward and then they couldn't. And they would stop. And we'd have to put down the washcloths and visit for a while. Sometimes this mom would look across the room at me with these eyes that were just kind of pleading, you know. And they were saying, why survive this? Is it possible for anyone to survive this? And you know what, my, my job was to give her another washcloth. That was my job, not to try and answer that question. It was to help her turn back again toward the suffering. Because that's where the healing's always found. In the middle of the suffering. We look for it every place else, but that's where it always is. By the time the the mom got to this little boy's face, she was so intimate with him, you know. She had burned through a great grief. I don't mean that her grief was over, not by any means. But... There was nothing separating these two people, these two extraordinary individuals, this mother and son. Nothing separating them anymore. It was extraordinary to see. Mm 
I remember that after we finished bathing him, we invited in his brothers and sisters. And I asked them what they might like to do. And they said he really liked to build model airplanes. This was his favorite hobby. And so I said, can you get some? And they got some. And we made a mobile out of these model airplanes, I remember, and hung them over his bed. And we dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas, you know. To be compassionately present for suffering, it means sometimes just not leaving the room when the going gets rough. Even when you don't know what exactly to do. It means not thinking you're somehow separate from this suffering. You know, my own son was seven years old at that time. And when I went home, I can tell you, I held him very closely that night. You know, know, there's this slogan we throw around. Your suffering is my suffering. And it's easy just to take it as a slogan. But it's a really different thing when you viscerally allow yourself to feel this. When you know this to be true, then the way in which you care for each other fundamentally shifts. The way in which you care for yourself fundamentally shifts. The deeper we're willing to go into our suffering, and sometimes that journey has to be so, so gentle, so, so soft, layer by layer by layer. But the more we're willing to enter into that territory, the deeper we're willing to go into it, the more we see the source of healing. It's hidden there, obscured there in the suffering. The second characteristic I spoke about was the willingness to release ourselves and others from the limitations of roles. Would you pass this water to that woman that's coughing? So she has some water? So she has some? Oh, okay. Good. So to release myself and others from the limitations of roles, wouldn't that be a great, great, great gift? Wouldn't that just be wonderful? Even for a day, for a moment, to be released from our roles, our images, where we didn't have to prop up anything. You know, I work with, I teach a lot of doctors and healthcare professionals about how to care for people at the end of life. And one of the things that I see oftentimes is that we're not looking so much to see what serves as much as we are interested in propping up some idea, confirming some identity of who we are. And I call this helper's disease, and I think it's more rampant than AIDS and cancer put together. And I'm talking about the ways that not just those of us who work in healthcare, but all of us can, at some point or another, try to distance ourselves from our own suffering or from the suffering of others. 
distancing ourselves with our ideas, with um, our need to protect ourselves, with our pity or professional warmth. You know, the attachment to the role of helper is pretty old in a lot of us, particularly those of us who work in some realm of service. But if we're not really careful, it will imprison us and those we serve. For example, when someone's dying, um, or even seriously ill, there's a period at which um, the fear around the pain becomes so strong and the contraction is so big, not just physical, but emotional and mental contraction is so strong that the person's world shrinks for a period of time. This isn't the only thing that happens, but there is a period in which this is predominant. And they start to identify with their anxiety, uh, with the contraction, with their shrinking world, in a way. And they cling to whatever is familiar, even if it's their suffering. Um, and oftentimes they can experience themselves as getting smaller and smaller. And too oftentimes caregivers, even the most well-meaning of caregivers, can exacerbate this problem, or can exacerbate the situation, I should say, by only focusing on the problem. And the person begins to think of himself as a problem to be solved. I mean, what's the first thing we ask them when we go into a room with someone sick? We say, how are you today? And it's a perfectly natural question, of course, but imagine if you're the 24th person that's come in the room that's asked that question. After a while, if you're the person in the bed, you begin to think, I don't know. I thought I did this morning, but... When we're wedded to the, pro- to the role of helper... We may inadvertently see the other person as broken. Whereas when we look at them as intrinsically whole, despite their distressing disguise, as Mother Teresa used to say, then there's a whole other, this becomes a portal for a whole other way of seeing. There was a guy um, who I love very much at the hospice. His name was Carl. He was like a grandfather to me. I, I still have this mm, really tattered. Um, gray cardigan sweater with wooden buttons that he always wore and that I have a great affection for even though it's really some people would imagine it's terribly ugly for me I I like it a lot it makes me feel good when I put it on and um, it was Carl's and he left it for me anyway one day uh, Carl had very bad stomach uh, cancer and uh, he had a morphine pump and managed his pain but he was really frightened still so one day he asked me if I would teach him to meditate. And I said, yeah, sure, I could try that. And uh, so we started with very basic instruction, like you might think about using in your own practice, guiding him toward, gradually toward the center of the experience. And when we did this, he just screamed with you know, pain. It was just too much for him. And so I said, well, let's try something else, you know. I said... Suppose we just tried to find some room around this pain in some way. 
And so, you know, like you do sometimes with your meditation practice, I put my hands on his belly to help. And I said, how's that? Oh, that hurts so much, he'd say. And so I'd pull my hands back from his belly and I'd say, how's that? And he said, still hurts. And I'd pull my hands way out to here. How's that? And he said, oh, it's a little better. Now, understand, I wasn't doing any mumbo jumbo or energy work or anything like this. We were just making space around the pain. And I pulled my hands out still further. I said, how's that? And he said, oh, that's lovely. And I said, oh, could you just rest there for a minute? And out of his mouth, not mine, he said, rest in love. Rest in love. And so from then on, whenever he would get in trouble, he'd push his morphine pump and say, rest in love. Rest in love. That became his kind of mantra. Yeah. I remember his wife came a few days later when he was dying, actually, and she was very, very nervous, very anxious. And he just would whisper to her. He was lying on the side of his pillow. He just whispered to her. He'd say, rest in love, rest in love. And the chaos of dying, and the chaos of difficult situations, one calm person in the room can make all the difference. In caring for someone who's sick, I often tell nurses, I don't know, are there any nurses in the room or caregivers in the room? Oh, there are some, okay. All right, then maybe you can help me to understand if this is true. If you're a nurse, sometimes the way I describe it is you lend someone the strength of your back. You lend someone the strength of your arms, for example, moving them from the bed to the commode. You do that. I think we can also lend people the stability of our minds. We can lend them the calmness of our hearts. We can open our hearts in such a way that we might inspire the other to open theirs. We can't really be too attached to it turning out the way we want, but we could do that. We can lend each other that kind of stability. And in so doing, we become a refuge. We become a sanctuary. Um easing the suffering of others and restoring trust. Now, the third characteristic, are you still with me? Can we talk some more? Is that okay? The third characteristic is the most difficult to talk about, so I'm going to try and develop it. um, The third characteristic is a deep trust in the process. In this case, the dying process, but we could say the process of meditation just as easily. And a confidence, an abiding confidence that you're not the separate self that you've taken yourself to be. Now, this brings us into the territory of surrender. And in this territory, at least in my view, We are all explorers, and I include myself in that. Someone once said, death comes not to me, but to someone else who the gods made ready. Death comes not to me, but to someone else who the gods made ready. And here we're speaking about the mythical gods, the archetypical forces in all of us. They're continuously working on us. This feels real to me. 
because the person I am sitting here right now with you will be changed, not only through my life, but through the experience of dying. I'll be fundamentally different, or at least a little bit different, than I am now. The surrender I've witnessed in dying is not so much about letting go or doing something, as much as it is about witnessing something. In this way, it feels more like an initiation than a letting go. Letting go, as we usually think of the term, um, well, we could say it's like um, um, an experience of release. And it's often accompanied by some feeling of freedom from a previous restraint. Whether it was an idea or state of heart or physical experience. Surrender, as I've seen it in dying and also in my own practice, feels more about feels more like expansion, actually. It's an experience of being transformed rather than choosing to release something. People I've been with and they're dying have said to me things like, Oh, Frank, if I had known the silence was this beautiful. I would have spent a lot more time in quiet. Or someone else said, um, I feel like I'm being emptied out so God can enter. Or someone else, I remember a young woman saying to me once, Frank, I just feel like I'm becoming part of something vast. There's a freedom, but it's not really about setting something down. It's not about pushing anything away. There's a freedom from the limitation because you're a different person than the one who was previously enslaved to it. You've expanded in such a way that the identification with the state, whatever it was, which was so strong and so compelling before, doesn't hold water now. You're simply not defined by it in the same way you were before. And something hidden comes forward in us. We could say the sacred or the soul or our own deep nature. And it's experienced as something familiar, like something we've known from some other time. And sometimes it's only a glimpse, but it's familiar. Surrender is also different than acceptance. You remember, those of you even who don't work in this world, remember Kubler-Ross's famous five stages, you know, of, what were they? Uh, denial, uh, anger, uh, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Yeah? And these became a sort of hallmark in some ways. Elizabeth was a great mentor of mine, and I, deep, I had a real deep love for her. And she... Um, Never meant them this way, by the way. She never meant them as a kind of linear five-step process, one, two, three steps, you know. Um, And I I have yet to see them ever operate in that way, you know. However, I've seen all of them in operation. But what's important about these is that people get overzealous about getting to acceptance, as if this were some final state. And in my experience, it's just the beginning. 
Acceptance isn't necessarily a state of happiness, for example. We may accept that our marriage has come to an end, for example, but we're not happy about it. So acceptance is a recognition of the facts, in this case, the facts of my mortality. But it doesn't necessarily engender transformation. That requires something else. Surrender is infinitely deeper than acceptance. In the dying process, what I've noticed is after acceptance comes other stages. And again, please don't make these any more linear than Elizabeth's five stages. But what I've experienced in my life, whether it's not just around dying, but other big changes in my life, is that after acceptance comes chaos. After acceptance comes turmoil. Yeah. Okay, I've accepted this is going to happen. You know, I've lost my job, but my, there's a lot of chaos here. And it's in this chaos that surrender emerges. In the dying process, people in the final hours, sometimes weeks of life, are extra- can be extraordinarily restless. Uh, there can be a feeling of um, uh, wanting to climb out of one's skin. People will take off all their clothes. They'll want to have the bed sheets removed. Um, as if there's a feeling of agitation which might be there. Often people describe something to me like they feel like they're being swallowed up by something bigger than themselves. I just want to say here, while I'm speaking about, I want to speak about the most positive elements of this work, of working with the dying. I don't have any romantic views about dying. I think it's the hardest work we'll ever do. And I don't, pretend that it's easy, nor that everybody will experience it as some remarkable transformation. So let's make that clear at this juncture. In letting go or in acceptance, there's this feeling that we are distancing ourselves from something. Yeah? We've put it down. In surrender, there's a feeling that we're coming close to something. In surrendering, we always seem to be surrendering to something, actually. And in this way, again, it's more like an opening, more like a sense of mystery. I often describe it as like getting a new pair of eyes. Maybe it's what Carl was talking about when he said, look upon the other with fresh eyes. Because in this experience of surrender, it's as if we are reconstituted. Death comes not to me, but to someone else who the gods made ready. Yeah? A friend of mine, a famous uh, teacher, talks about her mother being um, in her mid-80s and having had two heart attacks. This was some years ago. And she wanted to have a heart surgery, open heart surgery, which was very, very dangerous in these days. But she was a tough cookie. And she decided she really wanted this. And so my friend, who was a uh, physician, you know, encouraged her not to consider this, but her mother was quite insistent. 
And um, so I found a surgeon to agree to do the surgery. And on the morning of the surgery, my friend comes into the hospital. And there's her mother, a nice Jewish lady in New York, talking to a Catholic priest. And she said this was so unusual for her mother that, you know, she was shocked by this, really. But it also was true, wasn't it? This was happening. She waited until the priest left the room. She walked into the room and the mother turned to her and she said, I've really found in my life what satisfies me. And whatever happens, it's going to be okay. And she said, you have to find what satisfies you. She said this was so un." like her mother to say anything like this at all. She was just not the kind of person she would have talked about what's to eat for dinner or what about the curtains, but nothing like this. But she said it was undeniably her mother and undeniably true. And her mother went into surgery and she didn't survive. She described this as a moment of surrender for her mother, this conversation. Now, for me, Surrender feels a little different. I feel it like something like um, a gravitational pull. I feel it like um, an undertow. Or maybe we could say a karmic thread is pulling me. Now, perhaps the experiences of letting go or acceptance are precursors, if you will, stages before surrender. That's possible. Certainly there are choices in those stages, but in the experience of surrender, at least in my experience, I'm not sure there's any choice at all. Uh, Some years ago I was rafting down the Grand Canyon River. Have any of you done that? You've gone down to Colorado? Yes. It's spectacular to do. I highly recommend this. I have a good friend of mine who's on it today. She's on my mind. It's the most miraculous of adventures. Anyway, it's, you know, big river in the Colorado, great big rapids, 10, 15 feet high, some of them, and you're going down in rubber rafts, you know, over these rapids, big canyon walls going up 1,000, 2,000 feet, beautiful on either side. And on the other side of these sometimes very large rapids, there are giant holes, big holes, whirlpools, that can take a whole boat down in them, you know, they're big, powerful. Going down the river... In my enthusiasm, fell out of the boat, you know. Boom, I got bounced out of the boat and into one of these holes. And it was powerful. And I swam with every, all of my strength and might to the edge of the hole. I did everything wrong you could possibly do wrong. I had this image in my mind that if I could just get to the edge of the hole, I could somehow pull myself up out of it as if pulling oneself out from a swimming pool. And it's just amazing how the mind will work and deliver you these images as if they were real. And people threw me lines and I couldn't get to them and I just, I became incredibly exhausted. I think certain things engender surrender sense of wonder, sense of awe, for example, faith, but also exhaustion. (laughs) 
with this exhaustion, I could no longer pull myself forward anymore. And I just sank like a stone. And as I did this, my hands went up in the air like this. You know, just like that. And I felt myself go down into the tumultuousness of the water. And I can tell you, it was not a... Um, I didn't see any tunnels of light. Okay? It wasn't a pleasant experience. It was terrifying. I felt like I was being churned up in some incredibly powerful force. And I didn't think I would survive. And then somehow in the middle of all that, something else happened. I don't know what it was. I only know that I had that experience that many people describe of seeing things as if in slow motion. People explain, describe this in car accidents, for example. Now, I don't equate this with any kind of near-death experience or anything special. I only know that the river pulled me down and down and down to the dark waters and dragged me along the rocks and it spit me out in an eddy just down the river. And when I emerged out of that eddy, I felt like I had a fresh pair of eyes. Now, I forgot that freshness 10,000 times since then. However, it's also a reference for me. I don't have any sense that um, I know what happens for people when they die. But sometimes people say to me, I'm just giving it all up to God. And I have some clue of what they're talking about. Or they tell me they're just letting themselves lay in the lap of the Buddha. Or if they feel themselves embraced by Christ. And I have some sense of what they might be talking about anyway. Surrender is a pivotal stage in all processes of transformation, not just the transformation of dying. It's when when what is inessential gets sacrificed to what is essential. And at this point, at least at this juncture in my life, seems involuntary. And it's a sense of a small self being engulfed by something much larger than itself. And while there may be resistance, this is ultimately useless. And in this, when the struggle ceases, the struggle does cease, and it's when the self recognizes that that which has been engulfing it is its own deep nature. And then all struggle Jesus. There's a wonderful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. This is a good way to close our, this talk. And he says, um, um, Enlightenment for a wave is the mo- moment the wave recognizes that it's the ocean. Then all fear of dying disappears. Enlightenment for a wave is when it recognizes it's the ocean, then all fear of dying disappears. So I think I'll stop my comments there and say thank you for your attention.